Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast, and welcome back to one of my favorite people, Peter Grandich from PeterGrandich.com. We talk oh quite a bit, and uh, it's been a while though since we've talked to Peter. And uh, you know, Peter is still doing the um, still a sponsor over at RelevantRadio.com as well as a um, regular guest on the Drew Mariani Show. And Peter, Happy New Year! Although I know that you kind of had a rough ride this holiday season. Yeah. We're not talking about that. I I. For the first time, actually took the supposedly last two weeks off from uh, December, only to spend it the entire time ill. So, uh, uh, I hate, I hate holiday illnesses. I mean, I just do. You're so keyed up to celebrate the holidays, and then you're stuck. Um, so, uh, I'm glad that you seem to be doing better today, though, and I'm glad that you're with us. Yeah, well, I'm not quite down to Biden's four-hour work week, but. Uh, uh or yeah the four-hour work week um the the rehoboth beach plan um i i I think that that's uh i I think that that's the the future of presidencies and you know i i can't remember where the quote comes from i saw it in peanuts comic strip when i was a kid but there was i think it's from the talmud actually is that somebody um a king asked somebody um uh about the about whether it was a sin to sleep in and he said uh so that you don't do the evil that you do you should sleep till midday (laughs) and then snoopy says well back to bed uh (laughs) so maybe a four-hour work week for president biden is not a bad thing oh it's a it's a very sad story because you and i also commented on something even more serious that the secretary of defense could be in a hospital in a bed and uh they don't know it for days. I mean, that's yeah, it's crazy. I've been talking about this on all my podcasts, uh, you know, this week. It's crazy. It's this crazy story. Um, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but I mean, it, it kind of it kind of ties into just sort of the clueless disconnect um, that the Biden that the Biden administration has, the Biden White House has, not just with Lloyd Austin in a time when you've got you know actual shooting wars going on, in which the United States is getting caught up, but especially I think on economics on the, you know, we've talked about this for the last couple of years, really three years. Um, They didn't know that there was a supply chain crisis, right? Until the media started telling them about it. They didn't know that, you know, inflation was at record levels until the media finally started reporting it. These guys are just disconnected. I mean, I know you're joking around about the four hour work week for, for Joe Biden, but I mean, this, this disconnect with Lloyd Austin, this is not a one-off. This is not, you know, an, an anomaly. This is sort of business as usual at this White House. Yeah, there's no one that I can point to that I see that holds any position there that I could say Democrat or Republican, I could live with that person being in charge. It's <laughs> it's a it's a sad commentary. And uh, I, I don't I, I, I it's, it's inconceivable to me. And I don't know what we're to talk about today, Ed, but it's inconceivable to me today that they could go with Biden as the candidate, unless it's already planned that if somehow he can make it to the election and win, they have a secession way to go. And I can't believe that would be Harris, that they would somehow think that Harris would become president because he'd become too old to handle things. So I know this, and maybe this is how we can start the conversation. The political paralysis that I believe exists now throughout politics on state local and federal level, is just one of many factors now that have brought together, I think, a perfect storm 
on what I believe within a few years will be such an economic, social, and political crisis that it will make the Great Depression look like a walk in the park. I really, really believe that in my heart of hearts. I know it's not popular. It, it, it doesn't bode well for my business, Ed, but there's too many things happening. The the debt situation, you and I, since I've known you, have talked about this. And, right. and it's just, it's beyond out of hand now. We're, we're increasing deficits by multi-trillion dollars. We, we rose more in four years than we did in the entire first 200 and something years. Then we have a retirement crisis. 65% of Americans working paycheck to paycheck are just going to not get to that promised land that supposedly the American dream was about. Then, of course, we have this immigration issue. And Ed, here's where I think the, the rubber meets the road now. It was one thing when it was just happening in a couple of states. Then it became another thing when finally those states started shipping those people to other states and it became their problem. But right. now it's gone even further. Now it's impacting day-to-day -day people by this issue that happened in Brooklyn, where they literally took kids out of a school in order to house uh, immigrants. And once I believe it gets to impacting Americans' day-to-day -day lives, which I think is only going to happen more and more, as the governor of Massachusetts is asking people to take in. Now they're asking now, are they going to start telling us eventually? So I, I think that and the BRIC situation, as you know, I think is going to play a major role in the world geocomics. And we're not even talking about what's happening in the Middle East and what can happen there. Things there's This is the most... The, this is the most concern I've been in 40 years in and around the financial arena. That's the best way I can describe it. No, I think it's, um, you know, all of these things are are, um, are are crisis situations. I want to talk a little bit about BRICS. I'm glad you brought that up because I hadn't thought about that. Now, Argentina was actually, and we should probably explain what we mean by BRICS. This is Brazil, Russia, India, China. Um, South Africa. I'm sorry? South Africa. In South That's Africa, you know, five. Now there's five more, and there's 20 more that have applied uh, formally, and uh, another 20 supposedly informally. And this is a counterweight to basically the West, the the West's banking system, the West's economic system. Argentina was supposed to be part of that, and uh, is it Javier Malay, uh, yeah. the new the new uh, libertarianish um, president of Argentina, pulled out. And um, I think it's interesting. We should talk a little bit about this. I, I'm not sure how well-versed you are in what Malai is doing down there. I'm, I'm not even sure I'm saying that properly, Malay, Malai. Um, but I mean, he's taking actually fairly, I, if, if they're not drastic actions, they're certainly very substantial, very sharp uh, turns in economic and fiscal policy in Argentina in order to in order to stop a crisis from, you know, from cascading out. And it might even be too late for that. Uh, but he's taking a lot of political risks down there by making bold moves, like pulling out of bricks, like um, doing some of the other things he's doing down there. How, how much have you watched that? And how much of this would apply to the United States? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I, he never really pulled out because he was never really in to begin with. They applied and right. when he won, he announced that they're not going forward with it. I, I don't think any of the BRIC nations lost sleep over him not being involved in it. Seriously, I don't mean that to be sarcastic. I say that. No, seriously. no, but that's that's fair. It's fair. And uh but I, I what I what I think is important is is that when we understand that the United States dominance 
of something we were used to when we were much younger and how that helped us financially with a reserve currency allowed us to indebt ourselves more than more than often. It allowed us to influence economic decisions around the world uh, because of our military strength and otherwise. And we also had, in a sense, people's desire to want to deal with us. That is not the case anymore in good parts of the world, even in some of the Western countries. But clearly, the big one and the big news in that, which really took the BRIC situation from an afterthought to something really critical people better get and understand, is when Saudi Arabia announced to join and Saudi Arabia announced that they're now willing to sell oil in other than dollar-denominated currency. That is a tremendous uh, change. Part of that is the way or the misguiding how Biden handled when the energy crisis went and he went to Saudi Arabia and it kind of almost blamed them as part of the other part of the blame of the oil companies for the issue. And the fact that they now are willing to deal and are already structuring deals and have done deals outside of the dollar is really the beginning of the end. It's not happening tomorrow. And it's not happening next year, but it's happening in a multiple of years where the dollar will either be a much less reserved currency competing with something else and eventually potentially replace. But minimally, these countries are going to are continuing to form economic packs and setting up all the proper banks and all and things that are nature to do it. And the United States is outside looking in. They're not partaking. This is a totally avoidance of the United States. Right. I think that are the Saudis um, working in euros? I think I recall that the Saudis are working in euros now, right? Yeah, they well, what they're willing to do is they're willing to take it in other than just the, the U.S. dollar. Yes, and, they're, I mean, they're, they're open to euros. That's yeah. the other currency that they're open to at the moment. Yeah. The, the, the thing that is most interesting in all of that is China went from an afterthought, never had any influence or an apparent opportunity to have an influence in the Middle East and suddenly became a significant player in that. And uh, this is all this is all shaping up. It is happening. It's not going to be something we're going to hear in, in a week or a month, but over the next few years, it's going to become an extremely formidable situation. Even uh, a couple of the presidential candidates, uh, the young man, I can always have trouble pronouncing his name, the Republican kid that's a billionaire. Ramaswamy? There you go. <laughs> Vivek he, Ramaswamy, yeah. yeah. He brought up very good points, and he, and he explained it to a common people how this is going to potentially hurt the United States and all. So when you have that, and you have those other issues that we talked about, at a time when, and this is you know your area to feel, I wouldn't even begin to say that I can even be in the same room with you, but the political paralysis now, these two parties, not only do they can't work with each other anymore, Ed, but they have fractions within their own party that don't want to work with other members of the party. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see some of that in both parties, right? And yes. you know, both political parties are essentially coalitions, right? They're coalitions of, of you know, loosely joined interests. And I always try to tell people this is a reverse of the parliamentary system. This is one of the geniuses of the two-party system as it's developed here in the United States which is that we do coalition building before elections and parliamentary systems generally do it after elections, right? And you see this a lot with Israel, right? 
because they have a lot of parties and none of them can win a majority. So you have to do all your bargaining after an election's held. Um, and you see a little bit in the UK, although the, one party will often win a majority and doesn't and won't have to build coalitions. But even within those, there are interests, various interests that you have to negotiate. It's just politics. But the difference is, Peter, and I, and I think this goes to values and cultural values, is that nobody's really willing to compromise on anything anymore. Is it? It's it's everybody takes a maximalist position. And and, and look, I mean. We'll talk, uh, we can talk a little bit about the negotiations right now on the budget, right? Now, this is Congress's basic task, and they've been screwing it up for decades, last two decades. I don't. I think there may have been two regular order budgets in the last 20 years, and I, that, that may be one too many. I just, I'm trying to remember it off the top of my head. Um, they can't do it anymore because nobody's willing to talk with each other and nobody's willing to work with each other. And right now you've got a three seat majority for Republicans in the House and a one seat majority for Democrats in the Senate. And neither party's factions will agree to some compromise just to get the budget done, just to get the basic order of business in Congress done because nobody trusts anybody anymore uh, there. They've all lied to each other too many <laughs> To, to to have that sort of basic trust. And I think that this is a cultural issue in which um, we have created such distrust and maybe it has to do with social media, maybe it just has to do with a, you know, a, 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 an era of you know, double dealing and lying, but we've created such distrust that we the, the wheels simply won't turn anymore. And that has economic and uh, fiscal consequences, which you see um, as, you know, as, as an investor and as somebody who is a, you know, financial um, analyst and advisor. I mean, it's, it matters if Congress can't pass a budget uh, for a lot of different reasons. So think about that, Ed. So let's just say that we're correct that the debt and deficits get completely out of hand to the point of where the Congressional Budget Office, who just earlier in 2023 scared some serious people that understand it, that the, they saw the debt rising to 50 trillion within 10 years. They're now speaking as little as seven years because of how fast they're now, the debt levels are growing. How do you put a four or 5%, just a four or 5% interest on a 50 trillion tab, two and a half trillion dollars in interest expense, Last year, we had our best year, a little over $5 trillion in revenue. And some of that will grow. Some of that revenue will grow. Sure. It's not going to grow anywhere near the pace that the interest expense is growing at. And so you have that issue that they're going to have to sit down with. We have a lot of social issues, including, as I said, a retirement crisis, which virtually no one on Wall Street wants to talk about, but it's, it, it's, it, it's growing by leaps and bounds. Then you have this... I don't even know what to call it. And, and, and I like to address it, if I may, Ed, because I like to hear your view in it. I have a, I have a battle over the immigration. Uh, my, my, Christ, my Catholic Christian thought battles my secular world thought. And so, first of all, I think it's wrong to talk as if everybody coming here is just a bad person, either a criminal or they're going to blow us up. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I mean, I'm certain that there is a an element of that, but I don't think it's a large majority. 
So here are people that are coming thousands of miles in conditions that if we think we have bad on our worst day, in the countries they're leaving, it's just beyond imaginable, to the point that they're willing to risk and do what they have to do to get here. And when they get here, even though we don't think it's still anything great, hey, I'm being put up in a hotel, I'm being fed, I'm getting clothing all, that doesn't happen in their country. And so once you get here and see that, not only do you want to stay and take it, but you want to call all your friends and say, you need to come too. And those countries where they're leaving are glad they're leaving. They're not. They're not fighting them. No, no, you need to stay and build up whatever you want to call the name of the country. No, it's actually a, a positive for them. So my argument to myself, and when I discuss this, how it plays a role in finances, I don't know if a wall works anymore, Ed. I, 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 I don't. And, well, it would help. I mean, it still would it help. Over it would but help. But, but I agree with you, yes. With so many people coming, the, the swarm of it, even if you had military people and rifles and what, there's still going to be, the only way you could stop it is you're going to have to stop the people coming. And that is stop them from even having a reason to leave. And if you do come here, there's a serious uh, penalty for it. You don't get all these things that everybody uh, currently gets. And so now you have this immigration problem. You had the debt and deficit. You have the retirement situation. We have a, a a clearly tinderbox in the Middle East. I don't think people yet understand how complicated that is and how multiple areas can, can suddenly just uh, get worse. I mean, the response to this bombing in Yemen was overwhelming. I mean, I think just about every citizen they had seemed to be out in the street, okay? Right. So I don't think that bombing's stopping them. Let's just put it this way. Anybody thinks that's going to stop it. So if it didn't, that's going to mean eventually we're going to have to go to a higher level because it, it's probably going to embolden them to do even more. And when do you get to a level when it's... We already just had a couple Democratic congressmen calling out their own president saying he shouldn't have attacked because it wasn't a war act and all this other stuff and all. So there's so many things. They're, they're wrong about that, well, by so the you, way. They're, they're wrong not, about that. Right. I'm just saying yeah. this. But here's the, the last part, and then I'd love to hear what you have to say. I've never seen the financial community, given all the things we just discussed, the high valuations that stocks are at, a whole bunch of things we didn't discuss, the complacency or lack of either understanding, most financial advisors don't even understand the BRICS situation. They just don't. Trust me, they don't. They also don't understand about deficits. Then when you ask people and you say to a typical, talking to a couple of young financial advisors, I said, what do you think America's largest single asset is? They all guess it wrong. It's student loans. Yeah. And now people that have student loans feel that, I just don't want to pay. I can't pay. And, and, you know, come and make me pay kind of an attitude. So I'm just really, really concerned that it's kind of like the 1920s when people were partying. You know, it's that song party like it's 1929 and uh, underlining fundamentals were really getting bad. I think it's worse now because there's a multitude of issues both uh, here and abroad that I think are, are coming together for this terrible storm. So I'll. I'll zip it, and I'd love to hear your response. Well, I mean, my response is that um, 
you know, the, the unfunded liabilities are what's going to create this kind of a crash, right? I mean, in Medicare has massive unfunded liabilities. So does Social Security. Now, with that said, those are coming, those are maturing slow, a lot slower than people had initially assumed they were, but that doesn't mean that the problem has gone away. Um, and, you know, you've got a, re, you've got a pension crisis that's boiling over in some places, you know, much more acutely, like in California, uh, because they promised the moon to people and they're going to have to eventually restructure it. And there's going to be a lot of people very angry over the fact that their, that their pensions disappeared. And I have a couple of friends who are going to be among them. Um, the, um, and, uh, and they're not necessarily going to know who to blame. And I'll put that, I'll, I'll put it that way too. They're, they're going to blame the federal government when it's really the state government that created the problem and the state government that has to solve it. Uh, and you've already got Gavin Newsom who was bragging about having a budget. Um, I can never remember the right words. The, the opposite of deficit. <laughs> Surplus. Surplus. Thank you. It's a word not often. It's a word not often heard in our world, so it's okay <laughs> if you can't say it. Yeah, surplus. He's bragging about a budget surplus, and right up until the moment in time when it became apparent that they had a sixty-eight billion dollar hole in the budget, and Houston was going to have to go back to Sacramento to figure out how to fix it. That's going to happen in a lot of different states. I mean, those these are these debt crises that you and I have been talking about. I, I think that what you're going to find is that. Um, there's just really not going to be a political response to this until you get to an absolute, you know, catastrophe, financial catastrophe. And then I can almost guarantee you that what's going to happen is they're going to, they're going to, they're going to mishandle it like they did in, in 2008, like they did in, um, um, uh, what was the one after that? Um, well, the pandemic, like they did in the pandemic. They're going to spend a ton of money to backstop things that they probably shouldn't have done and create and, and create more issues down the road. And take a look at the Fed, right? We'll wrap up on the on the Fed thing here because we're just we're coming up to out of time here. But the Fed was signaling that they were going to cut interest rates this year, right? <laughs> because why? Not because inflation had gone away, but because it had gone down to a point where they thought they could get away with it. And what's happened since they announced that? Inflation started ticking back up again. And how do you cut rates <laughs> when inflation is ticking back up again? Um, and part of the reason why it makes no sense to do that is because the rates are still too low. I mean, we're at what, five and a quarter, 4.75 on, on the prime interest rate, Fed's prime interest rate. I forget exactly what the number is. Whatever it is though, it's historically still on the low side, right? Mortgages are around six and a half. Well, historically mortgage rates are around seven, seven and a half. So we're not in a position where money costs too much. We're in a position where people just won't put up with the fact that it costs anything at all. Right. And and they're going to want that back. <laughs> and the federal government's going to use funny money or non-existent money to try to do it right up to the time that the, the entire thing collapses. Because nobody's serious about this. And you can't even get a budget through Congress, let alone deal with the structural issues that Congress has been creating over the last eight, eight or nine decades now. And, and that's why I believe 
my attitude, which I talked about on my New Year's podcast, is it is no longer a time to think of capital appreciation. It's time to think as capital preservation because yeah. at the end of this, there's only two things the governments can do. They can print money, like you said, raise taxes, and 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 cut services. And so the, those of us who are still able to pull wagons as more and more people sit in the wagon are going to look for ways to get in the wagon ourselves. Yeah. And at a time when there's no political will, no backbone, and really no moral fabric that used to be, you know, people say, well, in the, at least in the Depression, people rolled up their sleeves, they helped one another, et cetera. I don't think that same thing would happen now if, if oh. that would occur. And, it's a uh, different value set now. It's a completely yeah. different value set. And I don't see people at all, Ed, in my work and my planning group, still nine out of 10 people we sit with have no idea or any plan B that this falls into. They have the Wall Street plan A, everything's good, give us your money, you'll get all your goals, but they don't have plan Bs. And without plan Bs, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be in trouble. Well, you know, um, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I, I think that um, that the value sets that we have been incentivizing over the last several decades have really robbed us of our ability to do the things that we need to do. And that's one of the reasons why we've got the Congress we've got, right? Um, I think it's really going to take a, a, a cataclysmic event to, to reset the values. I'm hoping not. I'm crossing my fingers. I'm hoping that enough of us are going to be talking about this. And I'll give you one, one brief thing of hope on this. And I just read this today. Did you know that the percentage of children being raised in two-parent um, houses is increasing? Well, well, that's a good thing, but I don't think it's going to be an overwhelming thing to take care of the that, that event that you foresee as I see. And I'm going to tell you that, Ed, we're used to those events being just a matter of months or no more than a year or two. I think it'll take a generation before uh, we can come out on the other side and, 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 in a sense, be in better shape than we were. I think this generation, my kids, or if we have our kids' kids, are going to take a step back and it'll be the first time in Americans' histories where the next generation was worse off than the previous generation. Yeah, no, I, 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 I suspect you're correct. And we're already seeing that. But I just needed a glimmer of hope. I need to go out today on a glimmer of hope, Peter Grandich. And <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can put a smile on some people's faces with that little well, fact. But and let's always close, whether it was relevant radio or not, that our ultimate hope lies in our faith. Yes. And, and that this isn't the this is only a this is only a training ground. And hopefully we pass the test and go to a, go, go to the next level, which is uh something that you won't have the worries that are possessed here. So I, as as concerned as I am and as, as negative as I am, uh, my internal fate has not been uh, changed at all for this. So uh, I think as long as we have that, we, as long as you do have hope, then, you know, you keep praying that, you know, through all this, um, the, the, the teachings of the faith that we believe in, uh, at the end of the day, no matter how bad it will be, won't won't be won't be ripped apart and and will be the foundation that we can survive on. Yeah, no, I think you're. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, we should pray. We should have faith in in the Lord and our eventual salvation. Um, uh, but it means that we still have work to do here too. 
And, uh, and if you want to know where, how to do that and, and how to be inspired to do that, go to petergrandich.com, petergrandich.com. He's also on Twitter at Peter Grandich. He was just tweeting about this interview right before we, right before we recorded it. And uh, he's on Twitter. He's on his own website. He's on Relevant Radio on a regular basis, relevantradio.com. You can download the app there. And the app is fantastic, by the way. It's a great streaming app. Uh, you can listen to it through your Amazon Echo devices, too. I do that often. My wife does it every single day. And uh, Peter Grandich is there, uh, very much a big part of the Relevant Radio family. Peter Grandich, great to talk to you again. We'll be talking a lot in 2024. Thank you, Ed. God bless. God bless you, sir. <laughs>